Open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes 8. Ecclesiastes 8. We've been covering the, uh, we're going to be covering the second half of this chapter this morning that's very, very helpful. Now, if you've read it ahead of time, or you paid attention whenever Michael was, was reading, you, you have prayed for me this morning, because you know it's one of those passages that whenever you read it, it leaves you scratching your head. It actually contains what one commentator said, possibly one of the most difficult sections of Hebrew in the, in the book, but as I approached the, the uh, Ecclesiastes 8 and felt some of those same things, what I concluded in the end, that that might just help us prepare for the actual message that Solomon has for us. That head-scratching experience can be part of life in general. Isn't that true? Even for followers of, of Christ. Do you have questions that on its face the Bible doesn't seem to give you the specific answer that, that you want and it, it causes you to scratch your head a little bit? Have you experienced events in life that have left you pulling at your proverbial whiskers trying to understand what God is doing or why God is, is doing it? If you haven't, you, you haven't lived long enough or you're, or you're not paying attention. The Bible is absolutely sufficient, and it gives us everything that we need to be thoroughly equipped for, for a godly life. Peter tells us that we have been granted everything pertaining to life and godliness. But, but living with the fall, we can still face limitations in our understanding in, in, in certain circumstances. We can be fully committed to Christ believe totally in the sufficiency of Scripture, even turn to it, but still feel very inadequate when smashed up against parts of the curse like evil prospering or the, or the suffering of a child. Does that perplex you? It should. Well, Solomon's going to help us with that today and show us how even when faced with these kinds of limitations, we can still trust God and enjoy the blessings that He has embedded in life. Now, the last time, in the first half of Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon gave us wisdom about how to respond to, to authority, and we needed that lesson too. God's gracious provision for dealing with the curse, part of it is human authority. Human government, family structure, authority in general, they're all God's primary means to keep crooked things from, from growing even more crooked. Just, just look at places where where there's anarchy, where there is no authority, where authority is rejected. A wise person recognizes God-ordained authority and submits to it, Solomon says. So Solomon gives us, gave us last time six wise reasons to, to submit to earthly authority. Michael Eaton, I think, summarized the, those, those first nine verses very well. He says, Man has enough trouble already under the sun without asking for further difficulty through open defiance of authority. You don't need the government coming down on top of your head whenever you're, when you're already trying to, to dog paddle the waters of the curse. Wisdom has its benefits. You saw that in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, the introductory verse. In verse 1 of, of chapter 8, we saw a wise person's countenance being changed from a, from a furrowed brow, a stern or strong face to 
to peaceful con- contentment when when they when they rest in in God's authority and we then follow its precepts. But in the second half of this chapter, Solomon is going to tell us wisdom also has its limitations. In the second half of Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon will walk about or will walk us through and talk about the boundaries of wisdom and draw some wise conclusions in in light of them. Now every believer wants to walk wisely before God, and the Bible in 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 the letter to James even promises that when we lack wisdom, we can we can ask God for it. And God will give it. But Solomon is going to point out three areas of life that uh, where even God-given wisdom leaves us with with questions. Not not that God's character is questionable. But it leaves us with questions about what we see. We, we feel insufficient to find, a, to find an answer. God can be trusted, and He's, he's never crooked, no, no matter what we see in life. As the Bible says, let God be true and, and every man a liar. So when, when your heart questions the Lord, remember only a fool trusts his heart's questions rather than the, the Lord of glory. But... It doesn't mean that we don't find ourselves scratching our heads sometimes, wondering all the why and how questions. Why did that person who hurt me get away with it? How is God going to make it all right in the, in the end? We live in a fallen world where storm clouds blow in and out of life and where the rain falls on the just as well as the, the unjust. And sometimes, Solomon says, the righteous get the storms and the wicked get all the rain and the sun. In a fallen world, religious leaders can be deceptive. Evil can temporarily prevail. Uh, the wicked at times get what they don't deserve, and the, the righteous are delayed in gaining what they do deserve. But the God of heaven is in control of it all, and so Solomon grants us some conclusions in the end about how to handle it. But first, he's going to show us three areas where wisdom has limitations. Three areas where wisdom has limitations. It's limited in the prosperity of the, of the wicked. Verses 10 and 11. It's limited in the, the postponing of justice, verses 12 and 13. And it's limited in the perplexing reversal of rewards. The wicked getting what the righteous deserve and the righteous getting what the, what the wicked deserve. God is never limited. But our ability to process what's happening sometimes is. And the first area where... That's the case, is in the prosperity of the wicked. Specifically, Solomon says, he, he, he zooms in on, on, on blatant hypocrisy and then brazen indifference. Look, if you would, at verse 10. Solomon says, So then, I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out from the holy place, and they are soon forgotten or praised in the city, where they they did this. This, too, is futility, Solomon says. Now, Solomon's already addressed the wicked prospering, but, but here he, he homes in on two particular challenges. When, the, when, when hypocrisy is blessed, the wicked 
are unrestrained. He says wisdom seems very limited in, in those, those moments. When a wicked person is blessed in the church, in the holy place, and, and when evil grows because nothing is done about it, there's no restraint on, on, on the wicked deeds of the evil. So, so they continue to, to, to just run farther and deeper into their, into their sin. Questions seem to mount at moments like those, don't they? Solomon's been thinking about what is, what is good for a man, and he concludes it's fearing the Lord. That's the, that's the source of wisdom. He's been giving us wisdom about earthly authority, and that comes from God Himself. And while meditating on all of that, his mind goes to some questions he has. He, he recalls a funeral, the funeral of a wicked man who's being praised. And he declares it's, it, it's vanity. Solomon says one of the gut punches of life is the wicked prospering under the guise of, of religion. Look if you would at verse 10 again. He says, I've seen the wicked buried, those who used to go in and out of the, the holy place. The wicked going in and out of the holy place means that, that they made their home there. They, they were approved or even appraised in that, in that place and, and allowed to remain. Your translation may use the word forgotten, or it may use the word praise, because there's a variant here. The context, I think, seems to favor the idea of praise, something perplexing, wisdom being praised even at the funeral. But regardless, Solomon's point is the, is the wicked are practicing blatant hypocrisy. They're wicked men, and they're going in and out. They're trafficking in and out of the, out of the holy place. They come, and they, they, they come to Timberlake Baptist Church on Sunday morning. They sit under the sermon. They give their money. They shake people's hands, and then they walk right out the door and go right back to their wickedness. And Solomon says that that causes you to scratch your head. Luther believed going in and out of the holy place here meant it was, it was implying that the priests were doing this. The priests were wicked. And if so, it's, it takes a, that offense that, to an even higher level. If the wicked are prospering, it's perplexing. If, if religion is used to approve of wickedness, that's putrid. But, but if religious figures are masking their wickedness with their position, that's, that's vomitous. Is there anything more disgusting than priests praying on those who come to them for help? What about charismatic leaders using false promises to get rich off the backs of the poor? What about a politician that supports partial birth abortion and who then goes to church and maybe he's even given an award there? Doesn't that turn your stomach? What about the student at, uh, at a Christian school who, who's, given the, who's living a duplicitous life but, but's given the Christian Character Award? You're sitting there scratching your head. That will make you gag and possibly bring up some questions and, and you feel very limited to, to answer them. The praise they're receiving, if that's what this word means, in, the, in Solomon's context, is at their funeral. You ever been to a funeral where flowery things are said about someone that, that you know is a wretch? Imagine how you would feel you've been taken to the cleaners by that person and you're sitting there at their funeral hearing how honest and upright they are. That'll make you scratch your head, won't it? Make you feel some things that you might not want to feel. 
Wisdom seems very limited in moments like that. How do I process that? And Solomon says because justice is delayed, evil men can even get worse. The limitation is in the prosperity of the wicked, specifically blatant hypocrisy, but also brazen indifference. Look, if you would, at verse 11. He says because the sentence against an evil deed is not executed quickly, therefore the hearts of the sons of men among them are given fully to do evil. Solomon says another place where wisdom seems limited is when faced with moral indifference because there's a delay. It's when evil people are indifferent about judgment because it doesn't come fast enough. And because it doesn't come fast enough, Solomon says they increase in their sin. And Solomon's going to address uh, the postponing of divine justice in the next verse. Right here he's talking about a delay in human injustice. Phil Riken quoted the axiom for this verse, The wheels of justice turn slow, but grind exceedingly fine. And Solomon says while we're waiting for the system the justice system to make powder, evil men are unrestrained by the lack of accountability. And that makes you question the wisdom of it all. If crime pays often enough, then then they do more crime. You can see that in some of the cities where they're they're removing uh, 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 even bail for 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 petty things or or petty crimes. Solomon says wisdom seems limited when the, when the rapist gets paroled and then abuses someone else. Doesn't that make you scratch your head? Uh, or the wisdom seems inadequate to give answers to the drunk driver who is still driving after his fourth offense and then finally hurts somebody. Causes you to tug on your beard, doesn't it? The slowness of justice, Solomon says, emboldens them to do even more bad things. Brazen indifference. And he says that's hard to take. The delay leads to depravity. You want to know how wicked mankind is? It's right here in this verse. Mankind, human beings are so wicked that second chances are used for second offenses. So depraved that even when there's a delay of justice, even a delay of divine justice, the mercy of God increases their, their wickedness. Second Peter declares that. Second Peter tells us that God is long-suffering, not desiring any to perish, but because of that desire, He delays His coming judgment. Second Peter chapter 3 is all about the coming judgment of, of God. And, and here it points out the, the character of God. God is not slow about His promise. His promise, His judgment is coming, as some count slowness, but He's patient toward you, not, not wishing, not desiring for any to perish, but but for all to come to repentance. God has a will of desire and He has a will of decree. This is His will of desire. He desires all men to repent. We know that not all will, and that's His will of decree. But mankind is so sinful that even in the face of this merciful delay where God is sending out laborers to to, to call people to, to repent, men take the opportunity to do even more sin. People who should be drawn to God by His grace are, are not deterred, or they de- delve deeper into evil. 
All people who sin and don't repent presume upon God's mercy. He's slow to anger and they take advantage of His kindness. And that brazen indifference brought about by human delay, and delay in justice makes wisdom seem very, very limited. But you should not think that that means justice won't come. Justice is coming. And you have to take that by faith. There's the prosperity of the wicked. Wisdom's limited to deal with that. The postponing of justice. It's the second area where wisdom seems limited. This is the postponing of divine justice. And Solomon says that has to be apprehended by faith. But rest assured, it awaits the wicked. Look, if you would, at verse 12. He says, although a sinner does evil a hundred times. In the previous verse, he talks about how justice is delayed and they, they give their hearts fully to do evil. And now he says this sinner does evil a hundred times. And, and in that wickedness, it may even lengthen his life. Still I know that it will be well for those who fear God and who fear Him openly. You see the contradiction here? Evil is prevailing. No justice is coming. They're doing evil a hundred times. That The wickedness that they're doing is even prolonging their, their life. And Solomon says, even so I know that it will go well with those who fear God. Solomon says something very rare for the book of Ecclesiastes in this verse. And I'm going to point it out to you because you, 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 you may have, have just stepped right over top of it. Solomon almost always uses observation language, doesn't he? I have seen, I have observed under the sun. And he does that because his method of proving his thesis, that, that this is a commentary on Genesis 3. Life is frustrating and futile, so, so he'll point it out. I've observed this and I've, I've seen that. He almost always does that. But here, in the face of postponed divine justice, he says, I know. You see that? If you would have, at verse 12 again, although a sinner does evil a hundred times and may lengthen his life, still I know, he says. He's observing the sinner, but he says he knows something to be sure. Wisdom can only go so far. And for the remaining trek between the justice on earth and the justice that's coming, the justice that's coming from God, you must go that distance by faith alone. Solomon says faith, I know. Faith picks up where the limitations of, of wisdom ends. He says, I know that it will be well for those who, who fear God. It doesn't look like it is. It doesn't feel like it is. It may not even be the case right here, right now. But I know that it will be well. That doesn't mean that faith is irrational. But when faced with questions we're limited to answer, our trust must be based on some presuppositions of unshakable beliefs. That God is that He's good, and that He will do right, just like His Word says. That's where you go whenever wisdom is limited. There's no place that that's needed more than when it seems like there's no end to the evil that, that men perpetrate. A hundred times, 
No justice comes. They continue to do even more sin. It emboldens them to do more sin. If you're a Christian, or if you were a Christian under Paul Pot's reign, wisdom ended and faith had to take over, didn't it? When you pray for something that's clearly righteous, but unrighteous men prevail anyway, faith is required. You have to know that those who fear God, it, it, will end, it will end well. Solomon says, even when you, when you see that, the remedy is that you must know that it will be well with those or for those who fear God and do so openly. Notice that's what he says. You fear God and they, they, do, so, they do so openly is how the, the New American puts that. He thinks, uh, Solomon says, uh, a timid faith doesn't have enough ore for that kind of, of smelting. It has to be full-hearted. It has to be open. A casual faith lacks the grip to, to hold up when these kinds of winds blow. It, it's like a, an overused post-it note. You might get it to stick. You might get it to stay. And, it, and you might be able to walk away from it. But the minute that somebody opens the door and a breeze comes through the post-it note, is going to, to fly away. Your faith needs to be sticky. It needs to be stuck to God and who He is, not your circumstances, because circumstances are going to come where the wisdom, even, even being a, uh, someone who follows the Scriptures and seeks the Scriptures, you, you're going to feel limited. You must be like Abraham, who was convinced that what God promised He was able to deliver whenever He took Isaac up on the mountain even if it meant a resurrection. That's the kind of faith that's required in these types of, of moments. Hebrews 11, By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and, and he, he who had received the promises was, was offering up his only begotten son. It, it was he to whom it was said, In Isaac your descendants shall be called. There's the promise. He considered that God is able to raise people even from the dead, from which he also received him back as a, as a type. There was a promise of God. Can you imagine what Abraham was thinking at that moment? Here's the promised child. I've already went plan B with Hagar and got rebuked from that, and now Isaac has finally come and God calls him to offer him up as a sacrifice. What's a, what does Abraham have to cling on or to cling to? The promise that he's the promised one? Wisdom only took Abraham so far up the mountain, and then, and then he had to know that God will fulfill exactly what he promised, even if it meant a resurrection, even if it, it meant that, that it wasn't going to work the way that Abraham's human eyes seemed to, seemed to see. While postponed justice is apprehended by faith, you can rest assured what awaits the wicked. Look at what else Solomon is assured of. He knows, he knows that, that it will go well with, the, with those who, who fear God and do so openly. Look at verse 13. Look at what else he knows. But it will not... Be well for the evil man, and he will not lengthen his days like a shadow. Why? Because he does not fear God. 
Solomon says judgment awaits the wicked. He knows that. He's sure of that. Even when it doesn't come in, in life. The idea in the Hebrew here, he will not lengthen his days, is, is beyond death. Look at verse 12. He talks about sinners lengthening their life. Verse 12. Although a sinner does evil a hundred a hundred times and may lengthen his life. And, and now in verse 13, he, he looks beyond the grave and says, this life is as far as his wickedness will take him. The person who doesn't fear God, the wicked, their shadow gets long and, and stretches as the sun begins to set, but it never reaches beyond the horizon. That's as far as it can go. That's the idea here. The Apostle Paul said that God's wrath is like, a, is like a dam of water. It's being stored up. And in the Lord's timing, it will, it will break on your head. Those who are outside of Christ, those who have no fear of God. Romans 2, 5. Because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you're, you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath. It's being stored up for a day of wrath. And revelation of the righteous judgment of God. It, it's, it's being stored up. Nothing's happening. You don't see anything happening on this side of the dam, the, the earthly side of the dam, but rest assured that those who are wicked that seem like it's getting away, God is building that pressure up, that wrath is being stored deed by deed behind the dam, and at His moment it will break. And you do not want to be on the other side of the dam when that happens. You want to be hidden in Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the warning that, that Peter gave to, gave to scoffers in, in this age. Same passage, Second Peter 3. He says, Know this first of all, that in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts, saying, Where is the promise of His coming? What will they, what will they say specifically? Why are they mocking? For ever since the, the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. There's been no judgment. I mean, as long as I've known, God hasn't shown up. Jesus hasn't returned. Evil people have been able to do what they wanted to do. And my father and grandfather, all the way back to the beginning. They'll say justice has been delayed since the beginning. And so they conclude it's, it's not coming. But Peter says that there's a flaw in their thinking. Something escapes their notice. Look at verse 5. For they maintain this. It escapes their notice that by the word of God, the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and by water, through which the world at that time was destroyed, being flooded by water. You know what Peter says there? God has bought judgment before. <laughs> he made the world once and He destroyed it as well. He promised that sin would not go unpunished. And the wicked men of Genesis 6 disregarded His word and perished in the, in the Noahic flood. And now this same God says judgment awaits those who refuse to, to repent. And so He says in verse 7, but by His Word, the present heavens and the earth are being reserved. There's the idea of it's, it's being reserved. It's built up, being built up for fire, not water. 
kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. While it can be perplexing when God doesn't stop the wicked, and even may, may seem like they're getting away with it, don't forget the, the righteous will be vindicated in the end and the wicked will face judgment. And Solomon says, I know this because the Bible tells me and I believe it. And it may be sooner than you, than you think. But it's still perplexing when the opposite happens on the earth. Here's the third area where wisdom is limited. It's when there's a perplexing reversal of rewards. Solomon says this, this happens only on the earth. But it's part of the curse. Assuredly, it's part of the curse. If you look at verse 14, he says, There is futility which is done on the earth. That is, there are righteous men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the wicked. And on the other hand, there are evil men to whom it happens according to the deeds of the righteous. I say, this is futility. There's a bookend here. There is futility which is done, and I say this is futility. In verse 14. Solomon says wisdom seems lacking when retribution and rewards are reversed. <laughs> when people live righteously and get what the wicked deserve. That's perplexing, isn't it? And when wicked people get the rewards of the good life. That surely tests the the limits of wisdom, doesn't it? it? It did Asaph in Psalm 73. Psalm 73, but as for me, my, my feet came close to stumbling. My, my steps had almost slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant as I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Isn't it a natural thing to think that when you do right, blessing will come and the opposite is true? <laughs> You're not alone. Job's friends concluded the exact same thing, didn't they? That's why they had such a hard time trying to figure out uh, processing what was going on in Job's life. You, you must have done something evil, Job, because bad things are happening. Or you failed to do something good. They concluded that God was punishing him because of his circumstances. There's the retribution. But Solomon says that's not always the case in a fallen world. And that seems unfair, doesn't it? It's true that in general, if you live rightly and you follow God's ways, it will go well with you. Blessed promises in the book of Proverbs. But as we said, that's a pattern and not an unalterable promise after the fall. Notice that Solomon limits his statement here in verse 14 in two ways. Notice he says that he's talking only about the earth. And specifically after the fall, look at verse 14 again. There is futility which is done on the earth. On the earth after Genesis 3. He's, he's limiting this. It's, it's on the earth only where there is a reversal of rewards. And he also says that to deal with it, you must realize it's part of the curse. I already pointed this out in verse 14. Futility, there is futility. And then it, he ends the verse. I say this is futility. Solomon leads the sentence, telling us where it's at. It's on the earth. He explains what's done here. As a follower of Christ, 
You must remember that you may not be rewarded for everything that you do on the earth. You may do right and get cursed. You may respond with silence to the cursing and people will think that you did wrong because you didn't defend yourself. But our ultimate motive in living here is pleasing to the Lord. And in heaven there is no unrighteousness. Second Peter 3, according to his promise, we are looking for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Heaven will remove the limits of wisdom, replace faith with sight, and there you will receive your reward, even if you get the opposite here. The Apostle Peter needed this lesson, the lesson of Ecclesiastes 8, right after Jesus dealt with the rich young ruler. Do you remember that, that interaction in the Gospel of Matthew between Peter, disciples, and Jesus? Jesus lays out before this rich young ruler two choices, treasure in life or, or a reward in the next keeping his possessions here and remaining outside of the kingdom or, or leaving all and following Christ. And you remember how that story ends. The rich young ruler walks away. And Jesus makes a statement about those who seem to be blessed by possessions on this, on this earth. He says it's, it's difficult for a rich man to enter the kingdom of, of heaven. And this perplexes the disciples. And so Peter asked in Matthew 19, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What will, what will there be for us? And the Lord tells him exactly what will be there. And what I want to point out to you is where he tells them. See if you can pick it up. Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or children, or farms, for my name's sake, will receive many times as much, and will inherit eternal life. You know where Jesus says the reward's going to come? It's going to come in the kingdom. In the regeneration. When he's sitting on the throne. Not here. Wisdom has no limits there because there, there will be no sin. Faith is not needed there because we'll, we'll know as we're known. And we'll not be perplexed because we'll see the Lord was right all along. And there we'll receive way more reward than any earthly thing that we've ever given up. But until then... We have to remind ourselves the, the source of these mystifying matters. Solomon says it's only on the earth and it's part of the curse assuredly. Two times he uses the word habel, meaning vanity. The word that Solomon uses to describe the emptiness of the fall. It's, he says part of the curse is a, is a misappropriation of justice. It's It's futility. Came from the dust, you work the dust, you return to the dust, and these things are part of our time here. So don't trip over it and stumble. Because even the wisest man, like, like Solomon, can feel, can feel limited 
when he faces perplexing reversal of rewards. You feel all that, don't you? You feel the limitations of wisdom and the prosperity of the wicked, the postponing of justice and the reversal of rewards. But, but that begs a question. I see wisdom as limited, but, but what do I do when I face those limits? I mean, is the point here just to gut it out until I, I see heaven? Or, or is there something that God has given us to, to navigate it? Indeed there is, and that's how Solomon ends the passage. He, he gives two conclusions to help deal with it in verses 15 and 16, uh, 15 through, through 17 at the very, very end. Solomon says the way that you deal with these limitations is you enjoy God's gifts and you trust God's wisdom. If you would at verse 15. Enjoy God's gifts, and you trust God's wisdom. He says, So I commended pleasure, for there is nothing good for a man under the sun except to eat and drink and to be merry, and this will stand by him in his toils throughout the days of his life, which God has given him under the sun. The first thing that will help you deal with these limitations, these questions that you can't answer, is that God has embedded in your life specific gifts. And even when your, when your answers are delayed, there's an outright reversal of fortunes. Don't neglect the good gifts that, God, that God's provided, like the fruits of your labor, gladness from, from life. Donald Glenn said, while we can't control adversity and prosperity after the fall, God has not left us without blessings. Each day's joys should be received as a gift from, from God. God has kindly given us things to, to enjoy. Just like the, the curse is baked into life under the sun, so are God's daily blessings. But if you get so wrapped up in all the questions that you can't answer and the limitations that you can't explain and the burdens that you have to carry, you'll step over the goodness of God buried in the field that He's given you to help bear up under these types of things. So rest and enjoy them. And then realize that God's the one who's placed the limits on your understanding. Verse 16. Listen to the pursuit. Solomon says, When I gave my heart to know wisdom and to, seek the, and to see the task which is done on the earth, even though one should never sleep day or night, he lost sleep searching. And I saw every work of God, all, all that I could see. I concluded that man cannot discover the work which has been done under the sun. Even though man should seek laboriously, he will not discover and though a wise man should say, I know, he cannot discover. You know who placed those limitations on your wisdom? God did. <laughs> Solomon brings us back to what he reminded us of in, in chapter 7. Sometimes God brings prosperity, sometimes He brings adversity, and we can't always comprehend God's providence, but in all cases, He did it so that you'll trust Him. 
Solomon gave it a yeoman's effort. He gave his heart to know, he gave his heart to see, he even gave up sleep. But in the end, Solomon says that man cannot discover, meaning fully comprehend, the work that God does under heaven. And Solomon brings us back to where we started in verse 1. Verse 1, who knows the interpretation of a matter? A wise man knows. And now in verse 17, he says, while wisdom illumines the face, turns it from stern to be assured, there are certain things beyond wisdom's grasp. And, and in those cases, those are God's ways. And that's the point. God has deliberately, intentionally established limits on your understanding so that you will trust Him. You don't know what's coming. You can't control what's coming. And so you must trust the Lord. How much would you really pray if you knew what was coming or you could figure out every detail? How much would you need God? My friend Joel James said you'd treat God like cough syrup only bringing him out of the cabinet when you're sick and you have a need. But we do need him. Even in the parts of life that we can understand, we need him. In the parts of life that we can understand, God has made them part of, of your existence here so that you will trust him. The Apostle Paul echoed this very thing following a stupefying truth about God's sovereignty in Romans 11, didn't he? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and of the knowledge of God. How unsearchable, there's the limit, are His judgment. Unfathomable are His ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? And, and who became His counselor? No one. Or who has given to Him that which it might be paid back to Him again? From Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be glory forever. Amen. God is showing us that all things are in His hands, not ours. And that's a good thing. And He had designed it that way. Wisdom has its benefits. Wisdom also has its limitations. But the God of heaven works in mysterious ways. And He's a good God that you can trust. Do you remember the words of the old hymn, God Moves in Mysterious Ways? My friend opened his sermon on this passage that I just preached with this song. God moves in, in a mysterious way, His wonders to perform. He plants His footsteps in the sea and rides upon the storm. Deep in unfathomable minds of never-failing skill, he treasures up His bright design and works His sovereign will. Ye fearful saints, fresh courage take. The clouds ye so much dread are big with mercy and shall break in blessings on your head. Judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, He hides a smiling face. His purposes will ripen fast, unfolding every hour. The bud may have a bitter taste, but sweet will be the flower.
Blind unbelief is sure to err and scan His work in vain. God is His own interpreter and He will make it plain. It may not be plain here, but it will be plain one day. And one thing's for sure, you can trust Him. Amen? Chew by your heads. Let me tell you one thing that you don't have to worry about. There's one thing that is not too perplexing for you to figure out, and that is that God desires you to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not too complicated. Recognizing that you're a sinner and outside of God's God's mercy, you trust fully in Christ alone for your salvation, by faith alone, believe that, turn from yourself and from your sins and to the Lord. And God says, by His grace, He'll wash away all of your sins. What a gracious God He is. Father, we love You. We praise You. We thank You for Your truth. We thank You for passages that make us scratch our head in the beginning that yield such beautiful truths. We thank You for the things of life that we might not be able to comprehend. Our limitations are there, so we'll trust You. Help us, Lord, to trust You and not our own ways or our own wisdom. In Your name we ask it. Amen.